Okay, so we're in a series on the minor prophets, majoring on minors. And today we start a couple of weeks in the book of Micah. So now you've got to find Micah. Well, it's, it's after Jonah. You've got your Bibles on your phone or in your hand in other ways. Lord, we pray for this, uh, this, this morning's time. God, be with us in this. Lord, make it extraordinary in our ears. In Jesus' name, amen. And we're in Micah. If you found Micah, we're in chapter 6. Micah was a prophet at the time, same time as Isaiah, although he lived in a bit different part of the country. And um, the nation was in a bad way. <coughs> they were hypocritical in their religion. They were uh, abusive to each other. There was injustice in the land. And Isaiah and Micah are both prophesying about how God will deal with that, how God will deal with their society that's gone adrift from him and how God will deal with them as a people. And so a lot of Micah is about that. Um, but this bit we're going to read today also includes the, the people, as it were, in the in the prophecy, talking about themselves and how they're feeling in terms of their own guilt. So it was interesting that yesterday in the Times, I got a couple of quotes for you. Da 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 da. When I used to preach in sick up and do this, they used to all cheer or groan or. Richard Dawkins, you know Richard Dawkins, don't you? the great atheist of our time, said at the Cheltenham Festival that he feared that if religion were abolished, it would give people a license to do really bad things. <laughs> I mean, how ludicrous. Does he not think there are bad things going on right now? Does he not think that people followed religions when horrendous things were happening in the world, he carried on, not content with that. People may feel free to do bad things because they feel God is no longer watching them. Okay, this is his ethical philosophy. We've got to keep this false religion because otherwise people will be naughty. Turn over the page and what do I find? I find... The columnist, one of the major columnists of the Times, talking about guilt driving so much of what we call goodness. Guilt is healthy, he says, necessary, and an impulse to do good. The concept of atonement is anciently rooted in all the world's major religions. So guilt is good because it makes us seek atonement. We should not feel guilty about guilt, he says. 
We should acknowledge it, embrace it, and wherever we can, pay the ransom. There you are. So Matthew wants you to have a lifelong feeling of guilt, pressurising you to pay the ransom. Now, let's read Micah chapter 6, the first eight verses. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and your enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? with ten thousands of rivers of oil. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Well, God's making an appeal here. He's making an appeal to a court, if you like. But as there is no one higher than God, he calls on his creation to listen to his appeal. It's a bit superior to taking prorogation to the High Court and Supreme Court. This is the supremest court. This is God himself. And God himself is saying to his people, what have I done to cause you to be like this? A bit like a if teenage child, if you've had teenage children, you know what God must be feeling. As he says, how have I wearied you? How have I wearied you? It's very interesting, isn't it? 
So I got three points today. What a surprise. One, God is good all the time. And two, the people's guilt. And three, what God desires. So God is good all the time, verses three to five. The people's guilt, verses six to seven. And what God desires, verse eight. They are the paragraphs uh, of this prophecy. Exciting stuff, yeah? You didn't know the minor prophets could be so exciting, did you? But here we are, and God is good all the time. So the first thing is, why be weary with this relation? Why are you weary? You know, the, the teenage child, you know, seems always to be weary of you as a parent. You know, they, they sort of go, you don't know anything you don't understand you don't know what's going on in my emotional life sit down and eat your beans and your pasta do your homework and it's like God is saying to the people, this, was, this is you, guys. This is what you're like. Why have I, how have I wearied you? And so the first thing he does is talk about how he saved them. They were in a mess. They were in Egypt and they were released by God. Grace saved them from the mess they were in. They didn't do anything. God came and dealt with it. God came and dealt with their problem the mess they were in. He provided leaders and guidance and examples in the early stages of their release <coughs> from Egypt. He didn't leave them leaderless. You know, I don't know about you, but when I became a Christian, we had these sort of basic Christian courses in the church I was in. And I can remember sitting with Jackie when I was a teenager, there was me and Jackie and Jackie's sister, Christine, and um, a couple of other people in this little room and we'd do some Bible studies before youth group. Was it before youth group? Yeah, it was, not it? Before youth group. And I can remember thinking, I like Jackie. I can remember thinking that. Something came of that thought. And... Uh, yeah, God is saying, hey guys, I save you, but then I don't just save you and leave you. You know, it's great when eldership teams are mixed gifting together, when they complement each other because they have a mixed gifting. And in, in the church I was in, in Sidcup, we had um, very mixed, it was very clear. We were so different to each other, it was ridiculous. But it was a great team. And uh, um, in that team was an evangelist. And he was very strong evangelist. He's had such a heart for people and to see them saved. The big problem was with him, of course, though, that when they were saved, he lost interest entirely in them. Because they got saved now, see. So he is interested in seeing more people saved. His idea of a good day off would be to sit in the, in the town centre and see who we could talk to about Jesus. 
That was his idea of a day off. Wasn't my idea of a day off. Wasn't even my idea of a day on. Because <laughs> I'm not an evangelist. I'm happy to acknowledge that. I will talk to people about Jesus, but I haven't got that gift. But he had it. And he'd love to see people saved, but then, you know, he'd gladly pass them on to the pastor. Right, they're saved, now you pastor them. Don't want to know. And it was very much like that. And because the team as a whole had all these different gifts, we were able to reflect the totality of who God is much better than we did on our own. Do you understand? So God says to these people, hey, not only did I save you, but I looked after you too. I taught you. I gave you a course of teaching. I gave you the basics, the foundations for you to build on and to grow in. I looked after you. Saved you from the mess, provided you with guides. Verse 4. Verse 5. You can only be blessed and honoured as God's people. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. Well, you remember that, don't you? Don't you? Who remembers Balak and Balaam? Oh, great. I'll have to tell you the story then, won't I? You can read it for yourself in Numbers 22 to about 25. It's quite a long story in the Bible. But basically, shortening it right down to its absolute essentials, what it was was that Balak, king of a group of people, right on the borders of the Jordan, had the Israelites turn up in their thousands and millions. There there they were, spread across the ground, across the desert. They all sort of arrived suddenly, and he's very frightened because he's heard their reputation. You know, they just just always win. That's the reputation they got. They always win. So he decides he'll have to get supernatural intervention on this subject. So he goes to Balaam and uh, asks him, to prophesy, to curse the people of God. And he offers him loads of money. And he says, no, I can't come, even for loads of money, because I can't speak against this people. And basically, Balak says, oh, go on. Do me a favour, come. So, (coughs) Balak pressurizes him and eventually Balaam gives in. He prays to God and says, God, shall I go? And God says, yes, go. But when he goes, God gets angry. And so he's on his donkey. Balaam's traveling to see Balak on his donkey. And as he goes, suddenly the donkey stops. And he beats the donkey and he said, come on, let's go, let's go. But the donkey stopped because the angel of God stands in his way. Balaam can't see that. So he beats his donkey. The donkey turns off the road to avoid the angel of God and he goes into a vineyard or at least between two vineyards where there's, a big, there's walls between the two vineyards and a little track in between. 
And again, boom, there's the angel of God. The donkey sees the angel of God. Ah! And Balaam says, come on, come on, what are you doing? In fact, it's so bad this time that the donkey has moved to one side and trapped Balaam's foot and ankle against the wall. Not pleasant, right? So he's getting really cross now. So they go on a bit more, because <coughs> the, the angel moves away. <coughs> they go on a bit more. And in another narrow place, boom, out comes the angel of God again. And the donkey stops again. And Balaam goes mad, whacking and whacking this thing, trying to get it to move. And so God opens the mouth of the donkey, enables him to speak, presumably in Hebrew. But I will translate into English for your sake. Okay. And the donkey donkey says, what have I done to you? Why do you keep beating me? You know, and and Balaam goes, because you're not doing as you're told. Have I ever not done as I've been told before? Well, no, but you are now. In fact, I'm so mad at you, I could kill you. He's got over his shock of a donkey talking now and he's getting it all off his chest. And then the donkey says, you know, look, this is the reason I stopped. And Balaam's eyes are opened and he sees the angel of God. Very amusing story. But you haven't laughed, so I haven't told it properly. It was very, it is, it's a very amusing story. Poor old donkey. Anyway, Balaam then arrives with Balak. Balak says, come on, I'll show you where they are. He takes him to a place and shows him some of the Israelites spread out in their tents and everything. And he says, come on, prophesy against them, curse them. And Balaam says, I can't do that. I keep telling you I can't do that. I didn't want to come because I knew what you'd ask and I can't say these things because this this is a people you can only bless. You cannot curse. God blesses his people. I cannot curse them. And Balak goes, oh, madness. He says, come come with me again. Look, I'll take you to another place. And... Sees more of the Israelites. Isn't there a huge host of people? Prophesy against them. And Balaam says, no, I can't do that. How many times need I tell you? I'm paraphrasing. That you cannot curse this people. They are blessed by God. And what God blesses, I cannot curse. The third time they do it. He takes them to a high place where he sees the nation spread out. For miles. Balak says, see what I'm faced with, see what I'm faced with. Please curse them for me. I'll give you loads of money. And Balaam says, I don't care how much money you cannot but bless this nation. You can only bless this nation. Because they're the people of God. That's what the story of Balak and Balaam is about. Did you know God blesses you. Did you know that? 
and he will continue to bless you. And that whatever your circumstances are at the moment, the blessing of God is available to you. Maybe not in ways you suspect or, or have seen before, maybe in fresh ways. But God will be a blessing to you because you're part of his people. You cannot be cursed. The enemy will try to get to you and he'll try and deceive you on this like, because he is the deceiver. But be assured of this, God is always for you. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. He's never not good. He's never slightly not good. He's never vindictive. He's never holding grudges. He's never against you. He's always for you. That's what the Bible teaches. And we need to get it into our heads that that is what the Bible teaches. Do you know God will only bless you? How does that change the way you think? How does that change the way you look at life? My God is for me and he is good. I cannot be cursed because God's blessing is upon me. Okay, so Shittim to Gilgal. What lovely names they are, aren't they? Shittim to Gilgal. Well, Shittim was actually where they were when Balak and Balaam played their games. But it was also the last place that they settled before they crossed the Jordan into the Promised Land. So they'd been released from Egypt and they've been on their journeys through the wilderness for 40 years and they've come to Shittim and they're about to cross the, the Jordan into this promised land that had been promised to them generations before and God was going to do it now. And so that was Shittim and Gilgal. Gilgal was the place across the Jordan where they stopped eating manna. 40 years, manna had dropped out of the sky and quail. For 40 years, they'd lived off this stuff. And I bet it was a huge relief to eat something else. You know, I love curry and I could eat curry every day. And when I was in India, I did. Two weeks of Indian curries every day. Wonderful. A little heaven. But I think probably after a few months, I might think, I wonder if there's anything else on the menu. They went through the wilderness with all this manna and then they got to Gilgal and it, it had stopped and at Gilgal they ate the fruit, the produce of the land they were going to live in for the first time. That's the significance of the two places. What happened in between was of course that Moses died and Joshua took over leadership of the people and what happened then was that God did a miracle parting the waters of the Jordan so that the people could go through and reach the promised land. It was a miraculous intervention of God. 
Remember these saving acts, he says. Do you see that at the end? That you may know the saving acts of the Lord. Remember these saving acts. Can you remember what good things God has done in your life? We used to sing this old song, Count Your Blessings, name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. I won't sing it because last time I quoted from it, I sung it and it was a disaster. But will you count your blessings? Or will you be a moody teenager and grump and grumble? God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Your life experience as a Christian, what does it amount to? If it doesn't amount to much, ask God to open your eyes. Ask God to show you. Because one thing is for sure, you have been blessed beyond absolutely anything you could ask or think or imagine by just being saved, by just being added to the, to the people of God, by just finding God loves you and redeems you and sets you free. Yeah? It's the greatest thing. Other things are just bonus, but we like bonuses, don't we? Secondly, the people's guilt. The people's guilt. I'm going to ask Sam how many sins he's committed this morning so far. Would you like to put a number to it? Yeah, that's probably not bad. More than five? Yeah. I was a bit grumpy this morning. <laughs> I didn't sleep very well. Let's, let's, let's call it, for the sake of argument, let's call it one. Yeah, that's not mine. Yeah, that's <laughs> Otherwise, I shall have to get my calculator out and do it all again. because you know we're not supposed to sin Paul said you know don't sin is not normal for a Christian you know get rid of it you can but we all know that yeah we we do but the sanctification process is is slow in some very slow in others and glacial with me so what we what we need to see here is that the people of God were incredibly aware of their guilt. Sam's pretty aware of his guilt, obviously, as he's even five doesn't hit it, and he's only been up for three hours. How many sins? Well, if you did, let's say you did three per day. You'd be well ahead of Sam in the glorification stakes with three a day. Three bad thoughts or two bad thoughts and 
hitting someone. <laughs> or, <laughs> yeah, one bad thought, one game of rugby, that'll cover it. Right. <laughs> How many sins? Three per day. That's 1,095 sins a year. If you had to atone, if you had to make reparation for 1,095 sins a year, you'd be fairly stuck what to do, wouldn't you? You'd think to yourself, how can I do that? What on earth is going to pay for that amount of badness in my life? Well, imagine that you did that on average, let's avoid the sanctification problem for the moment, but on average, starting with loads and finishing with just a few per day, you did three per day for a lifetime. Well, let's call the average lifetime 80 for the sake of argument. It isn't actually 80, but it's, that'll do for now. That is... 87,600 sins in your lifetime. 87,600 sins. It's like looking at Wembley Stadium and seeing all those people packed into Wembley Stadium and every one of them is one of your sins. How can you pay? And this is what the people were saying to themselves. With what shall I come before the Lord? They're saying... If I enter the presence of the Lord, with what shall I come? What shall I drag with me to stick in front of me to avoid the wrath of God against my sin? What shall I bring? What shall I bring? See, their first mistake, what shall I bring? It's the first big error of judgment for Christians who have been born again and set free is to then regain somehow Regain that sin which has been forgiven. It's ludicrous. But we, we have this terrible temptation to do it. That what God has forgiven, we don't forgive ourselves for. It's a terrible temptation for us that we live in a state of guilt when we've been set free from guilt. Because even Sam can now pray to the Lord and say, I'm so sorry, Lord, for shouting at Leigh when she was in pain. No, he didn't do that. No. I'm so sorry, Lord, for thinking about shouting at Leigh when she's in pain. Didn't do that either. Oh, you did do that. You can be forgiven for everything. For everything. Without exception. There's nothing you cannot be forgiven for. As you go before God and you say, I am sorry, Lord. No wonder Paul in Romans 6 says, Well, what should we do then? Should we sin all the more? Because it's so easy to get forgiven. Let's have a sin binge and then a forgiveness binge. And Paul says, if you think like that, you haven't understood. So these are two extremes. You know, here's these 
people consumed with guilt, wondering what on earth we'll pay for it. And there's, there are other people who just say, well, hey, we can just sin again, can't we? But the truth is, you can be forgiven for everything that is wrong in your life by God himself. Why? Because he's already paid. He's paid. Jesus paid. The atonement is made. You are at one with God again. As the old Sunday school trick on atonement says. At one with God again. Paul, and and um, John says in his letter, if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Let's not sin, but if we do sin, guys, if you sin, say sorry, get rid of it, forget it. Oh boy, that sounds radical, doesn't it? It sounds almost like I'm preaching heresy here. That can't be right, can it? You see, this is what the Israelites were saying to themselves. That can't be right. Let me drag my sin with me. That can't be right. What do you mean? Done, dusted, finished, gone. What? Don't be ridiculous. I can remember it. I only did it 10 minutes ago. And they would want to bring their atonement offerings. They would want to bring their stuff And Jesus has already covered our sin. And even under the old covenant here, the, the, the prophet is saying the same thing actually to them as they bring all their stuff. But look how they bring it. Look how they bring it. First of all, verse 6, What shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? In other words, shall I come with the law? What is the law give, told me to do? Shall I come with that? Oh gosh, I'm gonna be this I'm gonna be sacrificing and sacrificing and sacrificing for the rest of my life. Even with what the law demands. This is a bit of a panic now, starts to spread into their mind. And so the next verse, verse seven, first part. Will the Lord, perhaps, perhaps I can deal with it all at once, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? You know, the, the mind gets blown a bit by, you know, do you think that you know, 10,000 rivers of oil, what on earth does that look like? You know, how could you produce that? You know, we've just been on holiday in Corsica where there are olive groves, you know, and they produce a lot of olive oil. But 10,000 rivers of olive oil, how do I keep that going? In other words, they're getting into the unrealistic now. They're getting into the situation where their sins are piled high in their eyes and the, and the reparation is piling higher and higher in their eyes as well at the same time. You know, because you can't let go of this. There's always another sin round the corner. And then they get to the utterly ridiculous to the point actually where it is outrageous and wicked. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? 
And as their sins in their eyes and their guilt piles higher and higher and higher, what they think of is what God will do in Jesus. What they think of, what is the most horrendous thing that will appease this God of my guilt? And, and, and they, they think and they say, maybe even if I kill my own son, maybe that'll do it. So even in this prophecy, we have a picture of Jesus who is going to come and he's going to die. And God will see his son die so that you can live free from guilt. So that you can make these commentators look stupid. What can we say in the face of this? Magnificent, extraordinary grace that deals with every sin. In Sam's case, five eights of forty five seven. seven. In, in Sam's case, something approaching half a million sins. And in Jesus, wiped away. Let us not sin, but if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus himself, who gave himself up for us. Gave himself up, was delivered to the cross, the shame of that execution. But he bore the shame and he bore the pain because he knew at the end of it, this was capturing for him a people, was releasing them from the captivity of sin and capturing them into the wonder of grace. Free forgiveness, utterly free forgiveness. You pay nothing, which is fortunate for us because we don't tend to have a lot of rams. Or rivers of oil, though when I knock a bottle over, it looks like it. So here we are, guys, at the end of this. This amazing prophetic word. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? No, God has. And then finally, what God desires, which is actually the title of the whole talk. He's told you, oh man, what is good? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God? Just, I'm not going to talk on this for long. I just want to pick up one thing for you to think about. Oh man, he says, oh man. He doesn't say, oh Israelite. 
which he could have done. He says, O man, O mankind, God has told you what is good. And it can also mean, O man, you. You as an individual. God has told you what is good. And what is good is to do justice, to deal rightly with people, to deal honestly, without favour, to deal rightly, to deal justly, to, to keep your obligations. not to compromise, not to be corrupt, but to keep your obligations and to watch others do so with joy. To love mercy. Notice this word love, mercy. Let's not be reluctant in our merciful attitudes as we consider others better than ourselves, as we look at others and try to put ourselves in their shoes, try to understand, try to have mercy and be merciful. It says, love mercy. To love people who are merciful to love the acts of mercy rather than to just note them or just be a reluctant, merciful person. To actually love mercy, what does that mean for you? To walk humbly with your God, to conform to his ways, to walk in the spirit, not to exalt yourself, in conversations and relationships, but to walk with the Spirit. What does the Spirit want you to say in this situation? How are you to handle yourself in a godly way? Well, ask the Spirit to guide you every day. Next week, Don will be talking about the next bit of Micah, where Micah talks about how to live in a society that's lost its godliness and has gone adrift and has lost its anchor and is not a sort of society that God wants in his people. How do we live amongst a society like that? That's next week. A little taster. Uh, and for this week, remember it's all grace. Everything about the Christian life is God-inspired and God does what he says because he's good all the time. Don't try and atone for your mistakes in this life when you've said sorry. Ask God's forgiveness and whoever else you need to ask. When you've asked God's forgiveness, you know what happens, don't you? It's forgiven. 
So forgive yourself. Don't hang on to it. Don't drag it around with you. Don't let it pile up, adding to the half a million sins that are piling up in your life because, hey, Jesus has done it. Already. Already we are free. Already we have access to forgiveness for the rest of our lives. Already. Walk free then. Be free to be merciful. Be free to act in justice and honesty. Be free. Be free to walk with your Lord. Romans 12 verse 2, just finish with this verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is your potential. Every one of us sitting on a seat in this room and me standing up, Every one of us has this potential to discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the grace that leads us to this position. Thank you, Lord, for the extraordinary mercy that wipes out so much. An amount almost beyond our comprehension. But you've dealt with it, and we are free. Free to do good. To love mercy and to walk with you. Amen.